Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests this week, both inspired by recent events. In moments, we'll hear from the sociologist Seamus Kahn, who studies, among other things, elites in their schools. And at the bottom of the hour, we'll hear from the political scientist Theoria Francos on the fraying of our ruling institutions and what that means for left politics. First, elite schools. I have some personal experience with one. I grew up in a mediocre suburb in northern New Jersey and went to mediocre public schools there. But since I did all the things you're supposed to do, I got admitted to Yale in 1971 and spent four years there. It was quite a shock to me to confront all those generations of institutional power. Yale was then 270 years old, and a stratum of people I barely knew existed, preppies. People like me had only begun going to Yale in quantity a few years earlier, Starting in the late 1960s, under the admissions director R. Inslee Clark, known in classic WASP style as Inky, the university began admitting middle-class kids from public schools, and women as well. A few years ago, Clark was revealed to be part of a ring of sexual predators at the Horace Mann School of the Bronx in the 1970s and 80s. The legacies, those whose fathers and maybe grandfathers and great-grandfathers went to Yale and whose names sometimes appeared in the buildings, were still there in some number, but the days when Yale and other Ivies were mere finishing school for rich young men were over. They became much more meritocratic, a problematic word worth a show in itself, institutions for ruling class recruitment. As part of that molding of future leaders, a word such institutions love, places like Yale inculcate the sense, if you weren't already born into it, that the world is yours for the taking. That attitude came into gross public view with Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. My first guest, Seamus Kahn, had an op-ed in the Washington Post last week about that culture. Kahn is the author of a book about a prep school he was both a student and teacher at, called Privilege, the Making of an Adolescent Elite at St. Paul's School, published by Princeton University Press in 2013. He's also chair of the sociology department at Columbia. Seamus Kahn. You uh, discuss the etymology of the word privilege in your piece, which is, might be an interesting way to start. Uh, where does this word come from? So the, the word privilege comes from the Latin, um, which means private law, privus lex. And it's been used both classically in antiquity and then also through aristocracies to suggest that there are unique laws um, for particular kinds of people. So aristocrats, for example, the advantage of being an aristocrat was in part the status, but also that you didn't have to pay taxes. And um, there were a distinct set of laws that were unique to you. And Democratic movements have really been about making things universal, universal rights, universal suffrage, and universal laws. So privilege is, in effect, an antiquated sense that there are laws that aren't universal, that particular people should have particular benefits or particular privileges that are located within them almost privately. Uh, and you look at somebody like uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and you think, this guy would be nothing if it were not for those sorts of privileges, right? No, absolutely. I mean, I think he's an example of, you know, one of the, I wouldn't quite say useless children of the rich. Uh, I mean, he's, he's gotten fairly far, but that he certainly isn't one when you see him perform that, that impresses tremendously. And in fact, you know, even when you look at his, his records um, in terms of his performance at Yale Law School, they're okay. They're not great. You would expect the Supreme Court judge would, would graduate top of their class, head of the Yale Law Review, and be a kind of one in every five to one in every 10 year sort of student versus, you know, a pretty good student within one year at the school. You know, it's an example of a kind of white privilege that is something that uh, a white guy like him is able to get considerable advantages over others because he's not subject to the same rules or expectations. Yeah, now let's talk about the institutions that shaped those expectations. Uh, you wrote a book about uh, St. Paul's, uh, an elite school that, uh, not as famous as perhaps Andover or something like that, but uh, really quite uh, sterling in its reputation. Uh, tell us about St. Paul's and your, your experience there. You have... There are two things about St. Paul's. I mean, one, I went there to teach and research for a year, but also I went there as a student. So I have kind of a long experience with the institution. St. Paul's is difficult to get into. It's, it's got an acceptance rate well below 20%, probably closer to 10%. It has astonishing resources. It spends $70,000, $80,000 per pupil, probably more, whereas the average high school in the United States would spend somewhere like 10000 So, you know, upwards of seven times as much. 
And one of the things that's astonishing is that for all of those massive investments, the students aren't that much better. They're not seven times better. They simply have more invested in them. But the important aspect for privilege is that they're told that they're better. That is, students at those schools are told consistently, you know, you're the best. You're the best of the best. You are the future leaders of America. You guys have incredible talents, incredible skills. You work really hard. And this begins to sort of seep into students as imagining that they're different from other people. They're not like the average American. They're not like the average high school student. They're somehow fundamentally better, whether they're better because genetically they're better or their families are better or um, they work harder. There are all kinds of ways that students justify this, but they begin to see themselves as a special group of people superior to others. And... Importantly, these institutions often protect their students from the sets of expectations that would be laid upon any other group. So, you know, I also teach at Columbia University. It's an exceptionally elite, privileged place. Columbia has, on spring weekends, like almost all elite colleges, an event here at Columbia. It's called Bacchanal. And it's an event where students get really publicly drunk. They do a lot of drugs and they throw a party on campus. The university negotiates with the NYPD to make sure that the students are, quote unquote, safe. So they stay on campus. They're relatively protected. But one could imagine, like, what would happen in, say, you know, I live across the park in Harlem. If a group of young people threw a block party where they had a huge concert, did a lot of drugs, got really drunk and closed off their block. My guess is that the police wouldn't say, oh, that's great. You know, as long as you're enclosed in your little block, it's totally fine. They'd probably come in and arrest them. And this is a kind of thing that happens at all kinds of schools. It happened at my own college, Haverford College, where there was Haverfest, which is a weekend of drunken debauchery, where the police were basically told, you know, don't worry about it. Stay off campus. We'll make sure they don't leave and get into trouble. And this, in addition to being told just how great you are, institutes within young people a sense of their exceptional quality, that the rules don't quite apply to them. I arrived at Yale in 1971 uh, as a dork from the uh, undistinguished suburb in New Jersey. And almost from the minute you set foot on that campus, uh, you are told that the world is yours for the taking. Uh, and you emerge four years later with this sense that of entitlement that the really the world really is kind of out there for you. You have your pick of options, and for someone you know who came from a modest background, that that's quite head spinning. But uh, a place like St. Paul's is also full of uh, people who are born into the role as well as having ascended to it based on uh, alleged merit, right? Oh, absolutely. One of the largest affirmative action programs at colleges, universities, and in particular at elite schools is for legacy students. And you know we don't talk about that as an affirmative action program, but it's a major affirmative action program that gives preferential treatment of admissions to people who, you know, uh, for lack of a better phrase, won the sperm lottery. They, they, they didn't actually do anything. Um, they were born into some kind of position. And there's a non-trivial number of people like that. There are also a non-trivial number of people who are there, not necessarily because they're legacies alone, but just because they're rich. The head of admissions at St. Paul's told me while I was there doing research, the price of admission to UPenn is $5 million. And what he meant by that is if he could convey that this family would give $5 million to Penn, the kid would probably get in. And families had to, to demonstrate giving potential at a place like St. Paul's and it would follow through to Penn. But there are people who in some cases, crassly purchase positions, or in others, are sort of tutored and pushed their way through, but simply don't see this as a kind of inheritance. Instead, they see it as work that they did, qualities that they have, and things that they deserve. Yeah, well, Kavanaugh couldn't stop talking about how hard he worked to get into uh, into Yale and Yale Law, um, but forgot that his grandfather was a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of convenient memory, but I think for someone like him to have a grandfather as a legacy is a banal thing. It's, it seems relatively unimportant to him. And the fact that he didn't have, you know, two grandfathers who were legacies was the thing that was somewhat surprising. That would make you a true legacy. And, and you know, th this kind of reflects, in some instances, as I indicate, a willfulness to lie. But in other, words, in other contexts, maybe he's not lying. Maybe he literally doesn't see it. And the concern would be with him and with all kinds of people with these privileges 
that they literally don't see the, the advantages that they have. And therefore, they don't see how it is that other people, the disadvantaged, may be structurally disadvantaged um, rather than individually disadvantaged, by which I mean that the same institutions and, and, and advantages that they're blind to in terms of their own positions, they're also blind to how it is that those affect poor people or even just the middle class. One need not just think about poverty. Now, in your St. Paul's book, you write some about uh, how the institution has changed over the years. And certainly, I, I saw this at Yale uh, because uh, when I entered, I was a uh, part of the the Inky Clark generation. That's this Yale had opened up from being the institution that educated people like George H. W. Bush and even W. Uh, to some degree, uh, people who were born into the upper class, into uh, broadcasting a certain uh, um, loyalty to the idea of meritocracy that you're in on your merit, not your your uh, not the sperm lottery. How has that changed the consciousness? What does it do to people's thinking that they move from feeling like they were born into something into uh, to something that they had to work so hard to get there? It's interesting because some of the people who've most embraced the rhetoric of the civil rights movement, and by that I mean the rhetoric that it shouldn't be the color of your skin, but the content of your character, or the categories don't matter. So class doesn't matter, race doesn't matter, gender doesn't matter, are elite institutions. And they've fundamentally transformed. I mean, it's not window dressing. Columbia in the 1960s had less than 1% of its student body that was black, and now it's probably around 11%, or roughly close to what the proportion is in the overall population. This isn't window dressing. It's, it's tremendous. But it also obscures some fundamental things. To me, there's, there's sort of two lessons from this. The first is that that transformation suggests that inequalities may be producible under conditions of openness. So we tend to think that inequalities happen when institutions are closed off and there's not access. And the lack of access means that those people who do have access can extract rents or advantages from the fact that they have access. But actually, as elite institutions have opened up tremendously, they've also been associated with a massive rise in inequality in the United States. And so we need to consider how that's happened. And one of the important things is class. So the major openings of these institutions has primarily been around race and gender to a certain degree nationality, whereas class transformations haven't happened as much. But the second thing is that these transformations have led to a conceptual transformation on the part of the elite as well. So when elite kid gets to a place like St. Paul's or to Yale, the experience has been that they, they actually had a lot of friends who lived around them who were also pretty elite who didn't get in. So part of their own inter internal narrative is, wow, I worked really hard to get here. When they get there, they see that the, the world doesn't look like they're highly segregated homes. In fact, it's a place where, like Columbia, the student body may be majority-minority. So Columbia's student body for the last several years has been less than 50% white. This adds to the narrative that, oh my God, this is a place that represents the best and the brightest of different sectors of society. What isn't considered is this statistic I referenced in the piece that comes out of the work of economist Raj Chetty, which is that kids from the top 1% of families are 77 times more likely to get into the Ivy League or to be at the Ivy League than kids whose families are in the bottom 20 or 25%. 77 times is pretty astonishing, and it's clearly a product of some social process of systematic advantage. But the kids don't see that. What they see is that they worked hard to get in and other people didn't get in, and when they get there, it's a really diverse, dynamic place, and so it allows for them to generate an account of their own experience, which is one of hard work and excellence versus being born into tremendous advantages. I'm speaking with this sociologist, Seamus Khan. Now you, uh, as a, um, the son of immigrants, were not your traditional St. Paul student. Uh, you know, not, not John Kerry, I believe, was a St. Paul's guy, right? Uh, you know, that's the St. Paul's of old. You are the St. Paul's of new. Uh, what was it like for you? And how did people treat you? And how did you feel being there? My trajectory into St. Paul's, both my parents are immigrants. My mom's from Ireland, my dad's from Pakistan, and they both grew up basically in subsistence farming villages. So born into houses without electricity, running water, cooked on an open hearth, both of them. And they're not that old. They're, they're in their early 70s. But my parents were professionals. My father ended up becoming a surgeon, my mom a nurse, and were wealthy enough to send me there. 
when I got to St. Paul's, I was put in a dorm that was a minority student dorm. So I think of the 22 students, there were five white kids in my dorm. And it's not that St. Paul's was incredibly diverse. It was that those kids were sort of clustered together. You know, I quickly realized that my dorm was very, very different, but it hugely influenced my experience there because while at St. Paul's, I was relatively not wealthy at all. In my dorm, I was actually one of the wealthiest kids around. And I continued to live with those students for the next three years while I was at the school. And their orientation to the school was radically different than kind of my richer white peers. And my richer white peers were actually kind to me. I made some very good friends. There's a bunch of people who are very much involved in leftist politics. So Matt Stoller was in my class. I don't know if you know Matt at St. Paul's. We, we sat next to each other in the choir, actually. But the experience of race at the institution had a profound effect on me because I began to see the very different ways in which students, based upon their racial background, sort of navigated the institution. Some students had been kicked out of many other prep schools before, and it didn't seem to matter because their families, their fathers were CEOs of banks and they could get away with whatever they want. Other students, like the students in my dorm, didn't really drink much, didn't really do drugs because this was the one shot they had. This kind of sequestering of students from different races, the different ways in which students oriented to um, the institution made me into a sociologist, into someone who was looking at the ways in which class and racial dynamics had a big influence on people's lives. And by the time I left the school, you know, I didn't apply to any of the colleges all my friends wanted to go to because I kind of didn't want to be around them anymore, to be brutally honest. Let's return to the, the topic we started with, uh, the, the, the consciousness of privilege. Uh, you cite a couple of things in, in your uh, Washington Post article. First, the tendency to lie, rich people versus poor people and the things they lie about. Uh, what, what is that? So this has been uh, research done by people in business schools under experimental conditions and other things where they note that when poor people lie, they're more, much more likely to lie in the service of others. Uh, whereas when rich people lie, they're much more likely to lie in the service of their self. In other words, poor people often lie to protect other people, whereas rich people often lie to protect or advance themselves. I don't read this as saying that rich people in their core being are somehow um, way, way worse, but that the experience of being rich is often an experience of one where people lack empathy. So this was another thing I pointed to, is that if you look at empathy among people who are incredibly wealthy, they have far less of it. They don't really think about other people in the same way that most of us do. And that that lack of empathy is sort of tied to allying in the advancement of self versus thinking more collectively about other people and what you owe them and how it is that you may want to protect them because they may be in a position to protect you. What I took away from this, though, is that, you know, Kavanaugh isn't lying for some greater principle. I think he's lying, in effect, for power, for his own brutal self-interest. And this wasn't in the op-ed, but this worries me deeply. Not just the lying, but the reasons behind the lying, which are not to get where he needs to be so that he can do what he wants to do, but simply for himself. And if you think that, that someone is deeply interested in the acquisition of power as a selfish project, um, I think it becomes hugely troubling to think that that person would be sitting on the highest court of the land. But these elite institutions do uh, promote themselves as uh, promoting an ideal of public service, right? Absolutely. I mean, St. Paul's, where I attended, talked about the importance of servant leadership, um, where people are servants to a greater ideal and they lead. But I think that it's important to, to note that it's not community participation, it's servant leadership. So instead of being part of a group, you're leading a group. And you're not really a servant to the interests of others. Instead, you're the servant to some higher-minded ideal. That ideal could be the ideals of the fountainhead. The institutionalization of people having a greater calling, for me, you want to see what is the substance of that calling? What is its context? What is, I mean, what is its content? Excuse me. And the content is often quite neoliberal in its orientation, thinking very much about the same things that got people into the positions that got them there, their hard work, their individual qualities. That is then used as the core principle from which one leads. 
And, and so public service has a very different meaning when you think of public service as a leader, being a leader on the basis of an ideal versus being someone whose responsibility it is to engage in community interest. That term servant leader is really uh, left out of me because uh, I associated that with um, Christian fundamentalism, but uh, elite St. Paul Christianity also seems to, to borrow it. A lot of these schools emerge, though, out of uh, an earlier form of, of Christian fundamentalism. So they emerge out of the same sets of things that lead to the emergence of, say, the YMCA, which is referred to as kind of the muscular Christianity movement. And muscular Christianity movements were movements at the turn of the century where basically a bunch of people were saying we feminized Jesus too much with the whole love and caring and compassion thing. And we need to think about kind of Christianity as more badass. Um, so to start quoting about using swords versus compassion, those were fundamental right Christian movements that were central to the founding of a lot of these institutions or to their reimagination and, and the turn of the century to the earlier part of the 20th century. And it, it kind of carries through today with this sort of like this theme of being leaders, of being powerful leaders. You mentioned John Kerry. It's not just John Kerry. John Kerry went to the school at the same time, at to St. Paul's at the same time as Robert Mueller, who, was in a, who went to St. Paul's at the same time as Gary Trudeau, uh, who is the cartoonist of Doonesbury, at the same time as Ed Pillsbury, after which Doonesbury is partially named. Keep in mind that at one point in time at St. Paul's in the 60s was, you know, one of America's great political cartoonists, one of the heirs to its largest fortune, the future Secretary of State, and now uh, Robert Mueller, the person who's responsible for investigating Donald Trump. Archibald Cox, who led the Watergate investigation, was also a St. Paul's grad. I mean, th these people are deeply entrenched in systems of American political, cultural, and economic power. I washed Gary Trudeau's dishes uh, when I worked in the, in the graduate school dining hall. <laughs> Just uh, now this may be a little bit more speculative, but uh, in conclusion, um, Kavanaugh is a Catholic and very much conscious of that. His prep school was a Catholic prep school, not uh, one of these old Protestant institutions. Does that make any difference in his attitude or, or politics? I don't know. It's interesting. The, the response to the, the piece that I wrote, I received a lot of positive response, but a lot of negative response too, um, some of which you know, threatened me with Second Amendment solutions. But others which focused on what they read as my clear anti-Catholic bias, and in particular, my clear anti-Irish Catholic bias, that the piece sort of reeked of this. It surprised me a little bit, but I had thought about writing the piece relating you know, the Catholic Church's huge number of scandals on uh, sexual abuse and Kavanaugh. And asking one way to look at this is that what is it that these homosocial worlds that are deeply steeped in hierarchy, what is it that they produce? And I think that there is something to asking that question. And not all Catholic institutions produce this, but I do think that having really male-dominated institutions where hierarchy is the central organizing principle of those um, uh, institutions can lead to all kinds of negative outcomes, one of which is uh, a kind of sexual, sexual silence and a sexual shame where people don't really recognize or have a recognition of, of their own sexual agency and those of others, and others where like hierarchy and power is an inherently valuable thing. And when we think about something like sexual assault, uh, gender and power is a central way in which analytically we make sense of it so that hierarchies really do harm us in this context. And the institutionalization of gendered systems of power certainly don't fight against sexual assault. If anything, they may promote it. And so I think that there is a way in which to read some of these experiences through institutions that valorize men and valorize hierarchical relations and institutionalize power. I was Seamus Kahn, chair of the sociology department at Columbia and author of Privilege, the making of an adolescent deleted St. Paul School from Princeton University Press. The tales of Kavanaugh's time as a member of Deke, the gross fraternity, reminded me of the only classmate I knew who was a member. 
Fratsid almost died at Yale by the early 1970s. The culture of the 1960s undermined them, though sadly not completely, since they underwent something of a revival during the Reagan years. The major undergraduate achievement of the Deke guy I knew was throwing a burning couch out of his dorm window while quite drunk, as Brett Kavanaugh said. I had a great time at Yale, I must say, but it should not exist. It's too rich, and it's mainly an instrument of ruling class reproduction. Expropriate, I say, and give the money to broke public universities. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. How is some of Street Life by Roxy Music? But the good life's never won by degrees, no. Pointless passing through Harvard or Yale. Only window shopping, it's strictly no sale. Not sure how pointless it is, but I like that song. Next, the rich political prospects that adhere in delegitimation. The following interview is inspired by some comments that my guest, Theo Rio Francos, posted to Facebook early in the week about how ruling class institutions are being delegitimated. Trump and Kavanaugh have accelerated the process, but they didn't start it. That loss of legitimacy can be an opening to radical transformation, if we're lucky and we play our cards right. Theo Rio Francos is an assistant professor of political science at Providence College in Rhode Island. You must posted some interesting remarks to Facebook the other day, and since everything of importance these days seems to happen on social media, that we could develop these themes somewhat, about uh, the Kavanaugh hearings uh, and delegitimation of major institutions in American society. Now, this is I would imagine you'd think that I agree with this, that this has been a process underway for some time, but it does seem to have accelerated uh, <laughs> with, since the Trump uh, inauguration. What do you mean by this? What's going on with GC? Well, I think, first of all, that, that it is exactly um, what you just mentioned, that it is because of the Trump administration in an important way. These processes of delegitimation, um, of protest, of sort of the peeling away of a kind of collective consent to the, the existing order have um, been going on for several years, um, and we can sort of map that out. But I think that it's reached a kind of pitched, uh, accelerated point under the Trump administration precisely because you have the association of all of these nefarious aspects of the existing social order with a particularly nefarious individual or set of individuals. And I think that that allows for a broader radicalization of Americans um, because they have they have a figurehead that's so that has so much negative meaning invested in him, Trump, um, that now they can associate with sexism, they can associate with racism, they can associate with xenophobia, they can associate with crass neoliberal policy. Um, all of those existed previous to Trump, but I think Trump and his various kind of cabinet members helpfully kind of unify it, give it a target, um, and also make it more socially acceptable to protest each of these different facets of, of our order. It's always hard to talk about Trump because there's a certain strand of thought that thinks that all we need to go back do is go back to the old way of doing things and everything will be okay again. And that somehow he represents such a radical departure from business as usual that uh, he, he needs to be thought of as a unique phenomenon. There's a half truth to that, but not a full truth. So how do we sort these things out? Yeah, I think what what's fascinating is to look at at the kind of fracture and bifurcation among elites as they kind of deal with the current moment of, of as you put it, kind of accelerated political and economic upheaval um, and popular responses to it. Um, so on the one hand, you have um, the the doubling down on a reactionary, hyper conservative, extremely nakedly xenophobic, pro capital, pro neoliberal uh, segment of the elite, mostly associated with Trump's cabinet, with the reactionary GOP, with various kind of lobbying forces around it. 
Um, and so this is kind of what I would term the nakedness of power stripped of its legitimacy. Like there's no attempt to paper it over with sort of nice um, ideological functions. It's just crude power and exploitation. So that's kind of one segment of the elite. The other segment of the elite, what we might call the hashtag resistance, which is obviously a category so broad that it can include mem you know, anonymous members of Trump's cabinet, but certainly encompasses a lot of the Democratic Party um, and the sort of complex of pundits that resolve around it. Yeah, that, that New Yorker headline that said that the McCain funeral was like the biggest congregation of the, the resistance. I mean, really, that's not my kind of people. No, no. And I would refer to them kind of in, in exactly kind of inverse terms as the hollowness of legitimacy stripped of power, right? Like all they have is this kind of compulsive appeal to the legitimating function of ideology, but they really don't have the power of an allied ruling ruling class elite anymore. I mean, the elite is bifurcated. You have on the one hand, the sort of crude power without legitimacy. On the other hand, you have this appeal to the legitimacy of the center of norms of institutions, but they don't have the power of a ruling block behind them. So it's a really interesting moment where we have kind of one elite as just crude power, the other as legitimacy, those kind of functions that need to work together for hegemony to operate are kind of disarticulated from one another. One of the striking things about these, uh, the, this this pair of uh, elite contestants is that uh, you know, the Republicans, uh, leaving aside Trump, just McConnell, you know, the, the congressional Republicans, the Senate Republicans, are not shy about using power. Uh, they really know what they want and were willing to go uh, to any lengths to, to do it. On the other side, you know, you've got all these Democrats who talk about, as you say, these institutions and legitimacy and, and, and norms and all that business. Um, but they really seem afraid to use power in any way. How do you explain this? Is it just temperament or is there something larger behind them? Well, yeah, I, I think it's a great um, it's a great question. I and mean, I think part of it is that they are actually used to this bipartisan elite consensus, which, as I said, is, is fracturing right now so that, you know, they could play their role as kind of handmaiden or, you know, ideologue or promoter of more nefarious forces. But now that that's kind of fractured and uh, reality is sort of more clear to, the, I think, in a way to the general public, um, they don't they're not handmaiden to anyone. They're just sort of repeating their ideological function without being in clear alliance um, across partisan lines um, with the forces that would implement um, uh, along with them the, the exploitative or um, uh, carceral or border security, all of these policies that that were bipartisan consensus before, now it's harder and harder for Democrats to kind of line up behind them, but they're repeating the ideologies that used to legitimate them. One striking thing about Trump is uh, he just says things out in the open that uh, are supposed to remain sotto voce. So I remember during the first, I guess it must have been the first Republican debate, he said something about political contributions. And, you know, he was very frank that he gave money to uh, um, get access and that Hillary and Bill came to his wedding because he had contributed to them. There's something delegitimating about saying things so bluntly. Uh, exactly. And and I think this is not just Trump, though. I mean, Trump is a great is, is someone that, I, as, as I said, like it, it's a it's a point of of um, convergence of, of so many naked truths sort of coming out. But it's also in all of the groups and forces that rally around him. So I think it's really fascinating to look at how right wing evangelical organizations have have just nakedly instrumentalized the Trump administration. Like there's no pretense that Trump is pious or that he's a good conservative. There's just open discussion in, in their meetings and their organizations as reported in the New York Times that, you know, Trump is just someone that we can use to get our agenda forward. So that's a sort of, you know, stripping away of pious, pious ideology and legitimation away from a sort of reactionary, uh, socially conservative project. Um, and then in other places, too, within, you know, the broader cabinet, you see, like in the EPA, just no pretense that this is about environmental protection. Like the EPA is just uh, is just a lobbying, uh, a place for, for fossil capital to do its bidding. I mean, it just, there's so many places where there's no way to argue that there's any propriety or legitimacy or respectability about this. And it almost seems like the power holders themselves are not making those appeals anymore, um, which I think is opening up broader questioning at the very least, if not radicalization in certain corners. And this snarling, hideous face of Brett Kavanaugh last week uh, certainly opened up an awful lot as well, didn't it? 
Exactly. I think that, you know, if you had to choose an image to, to, to kind of exemplify the peeling away of legitimacy and crude power, it would be his enraged kind of crying, sputtering face. Um, I think it, it just was impossible to ignore that, that he found it impossible to really cover up um, as much as, you know, his denials were so hollow. Um, it was so, his, it was like his, his own kind of, I don't know, it in some way was like getting away from him. And it was just impossible, impossible to ignore in that moment. But then on the other side of the aisle, we have shorthand, say Goldman Sachs, you know, the, the polite side of ruling class power, which uh, Hillary Clinton you know, was their public representative. She lost badly, humiliatingly. What ha- what, what's now happened to that, that, the Goldman Sachs wing of the elite? I mean, I think that, that it's a mix. I'm, uh, many of their desired policy preferences are happening. I mean, we have major tax cuts. We have uh, a major uh, war spending bill that is benefiting the military industrial complex. I mean, th- we have the deregulation via the EPA, as I mentioned, um, and, and other regulatory agencies. So um, certainly the, the ruling class in terms of profitability and exploitation is benefiting from this. Um, they're not going to stand side by side with Trump, but neither are they going to per se resist him too loudly. But I do think it gets more interesting on an ideological level, the, the Democrats that, um, or the, the sort of Clintonite brand of, of, of the Democrats that um, is sometimes vocally resisting him. However, as you say, often not doing anything, including what would be in their power, either as public figures or as legislators or, you know, whatever their role is, um, to actually, you know, really slow down or, or resist Trump as their, as their kind of hashtag name alludes to. And what about feminism? I mean, certainly Hillary put feminism to a certain use, and a lot of women uh, thought that Hillary was uh, you know, an exemplar of, of what uh, feminism should be all about. We've seen uh, a, a very angry turn among a lot of feminists, a lot of women, since Trump's inauguration and a uh, process accelerated by Kavanaugh. Um, wh- what's happening within you know, the, these, uh, the, this feminist formation? Yeah, well, I think what we see, which is amazing uh, to me, is is the the kind of feminist um, um, and really in some ways radical feminist kind of anger and protest that has been bubbling up both with the Me Too moment, with the Women's March, with the Women's Strike, um, with a variety uh, of, of forms of protest and sort of truth telling um, um, that that um, have been uh, kind of under the banner of, of feminism, but again, a more radical, uh, a more confrontational feminism is is um, another ideology has been discredited, which is the kind of lean-in Clinton, Hillary Clinton brand of feminism. Like, obviously, that is not sufficient to deal with patriarchy, even on its own terms. Like, it, it might point out sexism, but it has no tools and it has no forms of critique that can adequately target patriarchy. And what can adequately target patriarchy is much more confrontational tactics and also the linking of sexism to capitalism, of sexism to racism, um, of sexism to a variety of other aspects of our of our unequal social order. And I think we're seeing now that those are the types of um, feminisms that are mobilizing to a broader uh, array of, of, of women and, and, and of the population as, as a whole, and that actually seem to have some, some power on a tactical, you know, political level to, to kind of confront and, and slow down or reverse some of um, uh, the, the most patriarchal and kind of worst uh, aspects of the Trump administration. I just think of the two women um, uh, who confronted Flake, I mean, in, in the elevator, like, you know, the confrontation works. Not that, not that that's the entirety of left politics. We need to do organize, longer term organizing and, and, and lots of other work too. But I think the confrontational tactic is sort of the face of, of a much more radical feminism that is really leaving lean-in feminism completely um, or feminism of the 1% kind of completely in the dust. But the, the the pink pussy hats also seem like a quaint relic of a more innocent time. Yes, I, I, I you know, I think I, I think there's something to that, but I also think that there's something to the way in which the the woman's march was one of many openings. And I don't wanna you know, I think that there are so many of them that I don't wanna give any one of them sort of too much weight, but one of many openings to both broader politicization um, and, and also just sort of like a mobilizational process that wherein people who maybe weren't previously involved in politics are are um, taking the steps to, to kind of be mobilized and be organized. So I think that the Women's March, um, some of its symbolisms, it's like an, a really interesting inflection point, right? Like it sort of drew on the kind of 
lean-in feminism of Clinton. It was like at this turning point, but also it was something about the people that came out that day, and I was in D.C. that day, exceeded that. And then, you know, then you have the woman strike, then you have Me Too, especially in its more radical um, forms. I think that, you know, we that was kind of a turning point. Um, and now we're at a point where a more radical and a more holistic understanding of what feminism means as political practice and critique is now on the table. I'm speaking with the political scientist, Thea Rea-Francos. A friend of mine who works at a magazine said that she and only one other colleague were uh, the only ones who were following uh, the the Kavanaugh hearings last week. There was a widespread detachment or indifference. You have an unusual workplace at a university, but um, what did you see among your colleagues who are perhaps not uh, quite as politicized as you are? Well, my co- so I'm in a political science department, and my colleagues are certainly, um, you know, avid uh, news junkies, even maybe more so than I am. And several of them teach in American politics and sort of follow the stuff very closely. And and I I have found, in general, both with the Brett Kavanaugh um, uh, hearings recently, but also throughout the Trump administration, a similar process of radicalization seems to be even taking place, for example, within my department or among my students um, who are very mainstream, uh, you know, sort of typical kind of American uh, kids. They're not, I don't teach at a radical liberal arts um, college, type of liberal arts college. Um, So I've seen firsthand these processes of sort of slow leftward radicalization among colleagues of mine that might have been more mainstream Democrats and among students of mine that had no previous political formation, but now either they have to defend Trump, which increasingly is becoming untenable, even for conservative students, or they, you know, can go all out and sort of protest a variety of, of aspects of, of our of our unequal order. And I think that, you know, I see that that bifurcation happening a bit among my students, but I would say the overriding trend is in a more progressive and even leftward leftward direction. How are these conservative students processing this? Um, I think it's really challenging for them, and part of this is is a little bit the the idiosyncrasy that I teach at a Catholic um, I teach at a Catholic institution. So there are conservatives that that are that that their conservatism is not just a partisan identity. It's sort of like a deeper philosophical or even religious identity. That's the minority of my students, but you know they they exist and they're the ones that are more vocal about their conservatism. But I think it's very hard for them to square Trump with their their philosophical conservatism and they feel pulled in multiple directions because as i said about your question about goldman sachs like some of the policies that they would like to see implemented are being implemented in a rapid and sort of very cohesive way by the trump administration on the other hand um the lack of piety the lack of niceties and in some ways the departure from conservative or maybe neo fiscally conservative neoliberal economics i'm thinking of the trade war and stuff like that is making it I think, difficult for them to defend Trump, even as they do find themselves defending certain of his policy moves. Yeah, the Catholic angle is interesting, too, here, because, you know, we have uh, uh, Kavanaugh coming out of a Catholic prep school. Six of the Supreme Court members now, are, or, or five or six are Catholics. Catholicism seems to be playing a large role in the American right these days in, in ways I don't really quite understand. And also you know, so many of the visible loudmouth reactionaries, you know, the, the Hannity's and O'Reilly's uh, are also Catholic. Uh, do you have any um, thoughts about what's going on there? No, I mean, I, I don't, except that I think that in Catholicism, in the right wing version of Catholicism, like the anti-Francis Catholics, right, you do have a, a systematic defense of hierarchy. And I think that that is useful for for this administration or for this for conservative forces at this moment, where precisely what they are doing is more and more on a, on a more consistent and more kind of explicit level, reinforcing, buttressing or expanding forms of hierarchy, gender, race, class and um, immigration status, among others. And then that's also what's being politicized on the left are these various forms of hierarchy that constitute our social order. Um, and I think that, you know, it's also really interesting, not not to sort of shift to the left side of the spectrum, uh, but but like I think it's interesting to also see how socialists and and left you know explicit leftists are grappling with how these different forms of a hierarchy and oppression relate to one another, how they relate to capitalism. So I guess what I'm saying is that I think there's this broader conversation right now and broader set of debates and disputes over how these different hierarchies and oppressions hold together on the right. In this Catholic vein that you just pointed out, we do have sort of more explicit defense of of hierarchy um, and social order. Um, And on the left, I think we have various ways to um, greater and lesser degrees kind of um, thinking about how uh, these forms of oppression and hierarchy might be targets of of a socialist political project. 
Your academic uh, specialty is Latin America. And I'm wondering, do you see any similarities developing between American politics and Latin politics? I'm thinking, you know, the, 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 the figure of the strongman, very macho leadership, a high degree of alienation between government and the governed, and the polarization, the economic and social polarization of the underlying society. Do you see any, any parallels developing here? Yeah, I mean, one one way, one parallel that I would I would take um, is to look at what the fa- features of the political and economic conjuncture were in the late 1990s in Latin America that opened up the possibility of the left coming to power and of also just broader social protests and social mobilization. And I think that we're in a parallel moment in the U.S. I don't want to draw too many easy comparisons across a highly unequal hemisphere. But I think that, you know, one lesson that we can take from the Latin American context is looking at what factors of a conjuncture politicize a broader population and sort of move them from discontent into actual mobilization and how those might relate to the left wing coming to power. Um, In Latin America, as many of your listeners might know, for about a decade and a half between 2000 and 2015, you had um, across the board, across countries, left-wing governments in power. And those came out of broader processes of politicization and radicalization of the, of the society as a whole. And we could link those to the ways that people became very discontent um, with a set of neoliberal policies and also with a, with a variety of ethnic, racial, and gender exclusions um, that had for a long time structured Latin American politics. So I think we can look at, you know, what are the features of our current conjuncture that are opening up politicization? Where will that lead? You know, it's an open question at this point. Will it lead to the left coming to power? If it leads to the left coming to power, and I mean at, you know, various levels of government, um, will that actually lead to transformation or is that a dead end? And there's certainly lots of debates among socialists and um, and other leftists about about the electoral and and sort of state route to power. Um, And and also how do these mobilized sectors sort of relate to elected officials that are leftists? And I think Latin America actually has a lot to offer there, more so than it does in a sort of generic like populism way. Like, I don't think Trump is like Chavez. I don't, you know, I don't think that those types of uh, mainstream media kind of equations of Latin American strongmen and, and, and the U.S. are are that helpful, um, in large part because they make Trump seem exceptional in the U.S. context. So we have to search in other places of the world of where, of, you know, how to understand him. Well, I guess he's similar to a Latin American because there's never been a U.S. politician like Trump before, um, or there are no reactionary movements that would have given birth to a Trump-like figure in the U.S. So I think that, you know, they have this tendency to exotic and sort of exceptionalize. But I do think that there are useful lessons on the left of how we, A, analyze a conjuncture that seems to be opening up forms of radicalization, and then B, how we seize that, take advantage of it, and use it as a platform to get into state power, potentially to transform some of the political and economic structures um, that we're critiquing. You have been, for the last 20 minutes or so, we're phrasing a lot of those things as questions. What strategies do you would you say suggest themselves from the kinds of things we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes um so before i get into the strategy question i just want to mention the different forces that i think have helped to chip away at hegemony and i think that will help set us up for understanding strategy and tactics so um, uh, we talked a bit before about about feminism, and I mentioned the Women's March, the Women's Strike, Me Too, um, all of those kind of inroads into a more radical feminism. Um, and these these might seem like a familiar list at this point, but I think it's really useful to think about the role of Occupy in politicizing inequality, to think of the way that the Sanders campaign sort of amplified that that criticism of inequality and corporate influence, to think about Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, and various immigrant and anti-travel ban protests of politicizing the relationship between race and capitalism or between incarceration and capitalism, between xenophobia, borders, and capitalism. The teacher strike for thinking about how, you know, the the undervaluing of of social reproduction, the feminization of it, um, um, anti-fascist stuff. So I just want to kind of mention those to, to note that for the past several years, we've had a variety of movements with different degrees of success, and we could sort of analyze each in a rigorous way. But what each of them have done in their totality is chip away at elements of the hegemonic order. Um, And I think as socialists, what we need to take from that is, first of all, see capitalism, um, as Nancy Fraser puts it, as an institutionalized social order that goes beyond the workplace, that goes beyond just the exploitation of workers in a narrow sense, but is something that shapes and infiltrates 
many aspects of life, um, from race to, to sex, to, to gender, to immigration, to all of those things that I just mentioned. Um, and therefore that actually opens up, I think a much larger terrain of struggle, right? It's not just not to downplay workplace organizing, which I think is supremely important. Um, but it, there are also many other sites where we can, um, disrupt, uh, this sort of reproduction of capitalism. So I think being as broad and open as possible is kind of the orientation that militancy needs to take right now. Um, any, I'm always suspicious of anyone that sort of limits like this isn't really radical and this is really radical, right? I think basically many, many types of social relationships are open to be radicalized and are sites of potential social struggle and confrontation right now. So I would say tactically and strategically and in terms of substantive issue, the most important thing to me is to be broad and to do as much of the work as possible, both in organizing, but also in propagandizing and sort of intellectual work to connect these various sites of struggle to capitalism, right? To sort of show their class dynamics, to show the exploitation at work, to show the dispossession at work, um, and to make those connections. And I think that that's what, what socialists need to be doing right now. That was Theoria Francos, assistant professor of political science at Providence College. She's working in a book to be published by Duke University Press sometime in the nearish future. Academic publishing works in a more leisurely schedule than journalists are used to, called Resource Radicals, From Petronationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the procession of popular capitalism from the 1980s Marxist Brit pop band McCarthy. Till next week, bye. <laughs>